Munchell, Associate Editor at American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and I'm the new host of the Call Number Podcast. This is the team's first new episode after a series of rebroadcasts, and it also marks the six-year anniversary of our podcast. We're so excited to bring you fresh content. This episode, we celebrate Financial Literacy Month and Money Smart Week, which runs April 9th through the 16th. Our show looks at three big questions around money. How can we raise it? How can we save it? And how do we spend it responsibly? First, American Libraries Associate Editor Sally Ann Price chats with Jennifer Burns, Supervisor of the Business Insight Center at Rochester Public Library in New York. She manages the Money Builders, a camp that helps build refugee kids' early financial literacy. Then, editor and publisher Sanhita Sinaroy talks with Joyce Skierzynski and Carlene Noel Jennings, members of ALA's philanthropic advisory group. They discuss the ins and outs of donating to causes and charities and advocating for nonprofit organizations with your dollars. Finally, I speak with Kyra Hahn, founder of the Facebook group Librarian for PSLF. We cover the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program and the specific challenges librarians face when repaying their student loans. But first, a word from our sponsor. The ALA-accredited Master of Library Science program from the School of Library and Information Management at Emporia State University is now fully online and asynchronous. Our affordable out-of-state tuition rate ensures students access to this program from anywhere at any time. In two years or less, you can earn your MLS. Request further information at emporia.edu forward slash slim. That's E-M-P-O-R-I-A dot E-D-U forward slash S-L-I-M. You run the Business Insight Center at your library. What does that entail? So we work with startups, businesses of all sizes and stages. So that can be, you know, it's just an idea in your head, or it can be, a, you know, business that's been in existence for 20 years and they want to find new markets, new customers. We also have the Carlson Center for Intellectual Property, which is a U.S. Patent and Trademark Resource Center. And we provide prior art searches for patents and trademarks, which is obviously an incredible cost savings for people. You don't want to spend a ton of money if you find out, you know, this has already been done. And we also do um, prior art searches for trademarks. They, we explain the filing process and all that good stuff. Um, if there are any questions that we can't answer, we have an IP attorney that we retain to answer said questions at no cost to the patron. We also do financial literacy programming as well. So a little bit of everything. And can you tell me about the Money Builders Camp at Rochester Public Library? And um, when did this happen? It was whenever the Lego movie came out. (laughs) Because, let's see if I can Google that. Because we modeled it after 2014. That was very popular, you know. So... We targeted our one branch, the Maplewood branch, because it has our largest refugee population and uh, predominantly Burmese refugees are are in Rochester. 
these are people that had lived their entire lives in refugee camps. So they did not have any familiarity with any economic systems, any monetary systems at all. Uh, and they often use their children to translate for them if they do use a bank. A lot of them don't use banks, which is a problem. Those that do work through their children. So we targeted the children of these refugees and we had a day long camp called Be a Master Money Builder. And we did all different activities around, you know, needs versus wants. Also like kind of a price is right game where we said, what do you think this costs? We did role playing so they could pretend they were talking to a bank teller. And at the end of it, they all got Lego swag and pizza and watched the Lego movie. It was really great because we had them go through, you know, what do you want to, you know, if you're saving money, what would you like to save money for? And almost all of them said their education. And then two said a a PlayStation. (laughs) Have you, have you done any more of these camps since then? Or is it part of like an ongoing program? We haven't done that exact camp. We've also, um, that camp was through a FINRA foundation grant. And we did the, the couple of years after that, we did the FINRA exhibit on called Thinking Money. And we did a lot of programming around that as well. Um, that included a Monopoly tournament. <laughs> and the kids were, again, very, very cutthroat, you know, took it very seriously. You know, again, lots of swag, like calculators and, you know, things like that. So that focused on like the learning objectives of of that exhibit, which is again, needs versus wants. We had, you know, discussing, you know, which of these is, you know, which of these is a regular cost. And most of of them, you know, figured it out like groceries and rent and things like that, but they all stumbled upon saving for car repairs. They're like, oh no, I don't have to, I don't have to like save money for that because the car is never going to break down, right? (laughs) So, you know, reinforcing what those recurring costs are and how important it is that you save for them, as well as, you know, how credit scores are important and having no credit is as bad as having bad credit. And what sort of feedback have you gotten on your financial literacy program for kids over the years or what sort of outcomes or takeaways have you seen? I think the biggest outcome is that the other librarians within the Monroe County Library System where I work are much more aware of the importance of doing this kind of programming. Um, I don't think it's anything that was on their radar previously. We just received the financial kit from ALA and the FINRA Foundation with the programming kit and the recommended titles. So we're just constantly reinforcing that with our children's librarians and and teen librarians that this is something that is important and you really need to do and incorporate into your regular program offerings. And so I think there's a lot more awareness around that now. Why has your library decided to kind of hone in on particularly kids' financial literacy and why is it important to teach young people about money, do you think? I think... Parents would rather talk to their kids about sex than than money. Um, It is really something that people are uncomfortable discussing. And I don't know if, you know, what the reasons are for that, maybe because they don't know a lot about it themselves. But if they're not getting the information from their parents and they're definitely not getting it from the schools, 
then someone has to step in there and say, you know, this is this is how this works. And especially with with looking at the refugee population, you know, usually if a family is unbanked, research shows that it takes like at least a generation for them to for that family to fully integrate themselves into the financial system. So we want to make sure that those kids are not putting money under a mattress or walking around with huge amounts of cash because theft is obviously very common if uh, in that population. So getting them on that road as soon as possible, um, because again, it's just not something, you know, it's like polite society, you never talk about money, you know, <laughs> things like that, even amongst your, you know, with your children, so. And what advice do you have for libraries that might be looking to develop similar financial literacy programs? I think it's just, you know, it's, people are like, oh, I don't know anything about finance. And you do, you, you know that you have to save money. You know that you have to pay certain bills. You can't spend more than you have. So I think a lot of people, it's like, you do have that, you know, you're a consumer, you know, you, you're a homeowner, or you have an apartment or, you, you know, own a car or things like that. You already have a certain level of expertise or understanding and that you, sh- you know, don't feel intimidated by the, the content. I think, you know, and with children, Two, one of the most important lessons is needs versus wants, right? And anyone can do that. You know, I need food. I want a PlayStation, you know. So even those um, activities, there's also an activity of, you know, save one, spend one, donate one, where you can do piggy banks or jars and learning, okay, I'm going to split it all up. Some I can spend, some I have to save, and some I can share with the charity of my choice to enforce, you know, how that is also an important aspect of being a member of the community. Do you have any future upcoming programs or classes planned? In the near future, yeah, we're going to be doing um, some story times around the books that were just included in the um, kit from ALA and FINRA, particularly about the yard sale book and getting rid of things, how that's a way, you know, again, like consumerism, we all have too much stuff as it is. (laughs) And, you know, learning how to live with less, which is also important just for the environment in general. I also have one more question about the um, engaging with refugee families. I wonder if you have any, any tips for approaching a specific group like that or centering them in your efforts? Like, did that involve community partnerships? We're lucky that just about that community regularly went to the Maplewood branch, like every day. But we also worked with refugee organizations that would that could act as translators with the parents. So, you know, because we need to tell them, you know, we want to do this with your kids and we're not going to hurt anybody. And I know you don't know us, but they really trust the staff at that branch library. And so it was kind of, you know, they're like, if you're okay with it, we're okay with it getting that buy-in from their leaders, uh, community leaders, was was very important. Also had a program that one of our librarians developed that uh, went through a simulation where each kid was assigned a occupation. And then it went from like Walmart greeter to like NBA player or like, you know, physician. And then based on what their occupation was, they had certain amount of spending dollars that they could, you know, purchase things with. And the take home of that was the profession that has the most education with the exception of 
like NBA star, you know, is the, are the people that have more money and more, you know, more things that they can do with that money. So that was, that was a really great program. So kind of tying in higher education to that is uh, important as well. Here's another quick word from today's sponsor. The ALA-accredited Master of Library Science program from the School of Library and Information Management at Emporia State University is now fully online and asynchronous. Our affordable out-of-state tuition rate ensures students access to this program from anywhere at any time. Our PhD program is also now fully available online. Request further information at emporia.edu forward slash slim. That's E-M-P-O-R-I. IA.edu forward slash SLIM. I'm here with two member leaders of ALA's Philanthropy Advisory Group, also known as PAG, Joyce Garzinski and Carlene Noel Jennings. Welcome and thanks so much for joining us on call number with American Libraries. Thank you for having us today. Wonderful. Well, first, can you explain what PAG is for those who may not know? Sure. Um, PAG is the Philanthropic Advisory Group. It's been in existence about three years, and it was conceived by the Development Office and the Executive Committee, um, as well as other member leaders. and. I've been the chair since spring of 2020 in the middle of the pandemic, uh, and Joyce has been the vice chair that amount of time. Our goal is to build a culture of philanthropy within the association, and we have member leaders um, from many different decades uh, who have supported the philanthropic efforts of ALA, as well as different of the other sub-associations within ALA proper. Our goal though is to encourage and educate members about the philanthropic and fundraising needs of ALA and the work, the great work that it does. Nonprofit organizations need their support and their advocacy. And that was why I wanted to, to join. I imagine fundraising has become much more difficult during the pandemic with fewer face-to-face -face gatherings. What adjustments have PAG and other groups made and what results have you seen specifically? Joyce, do you wanna take that one? I think as we are um, beginning PAG, um, we're really working on setting the agenda um, for philanthropy at the association and really building that culture of philanthropy um, throughout the association. And so um, we've had to pivot uh, to having virtual meetings and uh, virtual programs and things like that. Um, but it has actually really been uh, a blessing in disguise in that we've been able to have these conversations with donors um, where you know, we're, we're bringing out their support uh, for the association and sharing their stories. There are so many champions of ALA that really make this association work so well. And um, 
being able to, to give them a platform to share their stories and hopefully really encourage others uh, to, to want to be involved, to want to give and share their stories as well. Um, it, it's been a wonderful experience and you know we've, we've had lots of uh, success. We had a wonderful program at Libler, uh, connected to LibLearnX where um, we had a conversation uh, involving the Spectrum Scholars and uh, Betty Turok and how um, she really grew to support uh, that program. And we're looking forward to creating uh, many more of these programs um, at Connected to Future conferences so that we can really build this culture. And just to follow up on what Joyce said, I think hiring, et cetera, during the pandemic has been pivoted, um, just like it has with many other organizations. And therefore, uh, one of the key things that is critical for a culture of philanthropy is stability. And that's what we've really tried to put in place with some of the virtual events that we've had, as well as the donor outreach that we've been doing on behalf of the association. And what is the current state of philanthropy generally right now? Um, for overall, for the U.S., actually, it's up. Um, it there are certain sectors that are down, but overall, uh, philanthropic investment in organizations is up. But you also have to look at how many different nonprofits there are around the country and elsewhere. Um, you know, it's approaching two million in the U.S. alone. And so there are choices that people have to make about where they choose to invest their time, talent, and treasure. Uh, so part of what we've made an effort to do is remind people of the value of the association and why they need to be a part of it. And with the humanitarian crisis right now in Ukraine, many people are donating to charities. Um, but with that also comes an uptick in charity scams what advice would you give to library workers who are themselves looking to donate to these efforts or others, um, or with helping patrons distinguish between legitimate and fraudulent charities? So I think one of the things to, to think about is uh, a concept that Carlene and I um, are, are um, working on, is this idea of intentional philanthropy. And we plan so much of what we do. You know, we make exercise plans, we meal plan, um, we financial plan, but how many of us actually plan our philanthropy and what we're gonna give to? And it's so important because planning your philanthropy allows it to have incredible impact. Um, if you give, um, and, and don't do the research um, behind the charities that you're, you're giving to, you're not going to have an impact on the causes that you really care about. So it, it's really important to develop a plan um, for how you're gonna give and what you're gonna give to. Um, you wanna give to causes that are meaningful to you and develop relationships um, to them over time. Um, you know, where do you invest your time? Um, where do you invest your other resources? And that's where you want to be thinking about 
where should I also invest my money? Um, so it's really about building that larger uh, philanthropic plan um, when it comes to giving in order for it to have the most impact. And to add to your uh, question specifically about evaluation, there are several evaluation tools from GuideStar to Charity Navigator to others that provide scores for charities. Um, I say that because there, in some cases, um, you know, a newer charity may not be listed, but you can look at someone's 990 forms or forms of establishment. There are all legitimate ways to do so. I think you mentioned about, especially the crisis in the Ukraine and other organ in other world world hotspots, so to speak. I would say looking at organizations who've been working in those spaces for a long time and looking at their track record is something that you'd want to do. And I I do think um, making sure that there is um, it's it's not just a website, that there's a human that you can talk to and find out more. I think those are critical components personally, but that, that's one of the ways that I evaluate the sources that I, I support is also looking at um, how, how can I be engaged and involved and not just write a check. And this goes back to the planning aspect that Joyce is talking about. You know, if giving for humanitarian need, whether it's um, a crisis like what's going on in the Ukraine or um, a weather system that might have caused havoc somewhere, which happens quite often. Um, you know, do I put that in my plan? Is that something that I want to support and help with? Uh, those are, that's where this whole idea of a personal connection to your philanthropy is critical. And also surely complicating fundraising efforts right now is the near 8% inflation and high gas prices, not to mention ongoing concerns about economic in inequality, student debt, um, sky high housing costs. With so much economic instability, what makes charitable giving so important right now? And Carlene, do you wanna take that one? Sure, I, I think one of the things to start with, historically in the United States, uh, the individuals who have been philanthropically minded come across all um, spectrums of, of the economy. It's not just high net worth individuals, it's everyone in the community. And looking at, you know, what portion do people want to support or invest in their communities? And I think, you know, there are different ways that people can support. I have heard, you know, spending a career in higher education, well, I write student loan checks. Well, I wrote student loan checks too, but I could still develop a plan for what I wanted to invest my money in as far as um, supporting those organizations that have made a difference to me, including the local public library that I grew up with, for example. So I, I would say, um, people make decisions about their finances. You know, people have been talking about the gas prices and yes, they're, they are um, substantial and inflation rates and, and all of those things and costs do go, are, are going up. But when you look at um, people's real estate uh, uh, values are also going up and people's um, 
people switching jobs through the great resignation, so to speak, are ending up with higher paying and jobs. So looking at how can philanthropy be part of their overall planning is what Joyce and I wanted to come on uh, your program today and talk about. And what's the biggest piece of information or education that's missing right now when it comes to financial literacy? And Joyce, do you want to take that one? Um, I think one of the, the biggest challenges is that people don't see themselves as philanthropists. I think a lot of times we, we tend to think of, you know, I'm just a library worker. I, what impact can I make? And the answer is you can make a huge impact. This is not something that you're planning for you know, tomorrow or the next day, this is something that you're planning for a lifetime. Um, it's so important to have that, that long game. And when you plan out how, you know, you're going to be involved with an organization, um, you know, how are you going to volunteer? You know, where, how are you going to make a difference with the the causes that really matter that are on your heart? Um, you know, these are the things that you really care about. And so you can have an impact um, with the growing number of nonprofits that are, um, you know, available to donate to in the United States. They're growing exponentially. And so um, for nonprofits, every dollar matters. Um, and so, and every donor matters. You do have a difference. Um, it may not be a, a huge amount at this time that you're giving, but over the long term, you can really have an impact uh, to the causes that you care about. And so planning all of that out and figuring out how you're going to have that impact is, is, is vital. I'd like to add to that answer that I think people, you know, budget for their Netflix and budget for their Amazon Prime and budget for whatever um, installment things that they might do. Um, you can also do that with your philanthropy. You can, um, you can decide that this is an ongoing a recurring thing. And I know some people think, oh, well, I work here. I don't necessarily want to support here. Um, and that does happen. That said, I, I look at there's, you know, the regional library associations and the national ones like ALA or um, organizations like PLA and uh, ACRL. They also need your support, but you can target where your interests are. You know, if um, you're interested in helping libraries fight in the academic freedom and social justice space, that, that's an option. If you're caring about library workers, that's an option. If you see those as two distinctly different things, there's, there's a fund for that. And it's also about educating yourself so you can educate others in the public who may have larger amounts that they can support with. Um, it's not a one size fits all, which I think sometimes we we lose ourselves in, you know, just like with a nutrition plan, it's not one size fits all for every person, for every individual. And um, 
we, we have the basic building blocks of what works for nutrition, but it might be a, a different percentages for each person. And it's the same way with philanthropy, so. We're also seeing a lot with book challenges and um, are, are libraries, foundations, trustees, are they um, seeing an increase in donations or charitable giving based on some of these intellectual freedom issues? I think it's an opportunity. Um, I'm not sure of the exact figures, uh, you know, financially how, uh, you know, what's what's happening, but um, I do know it's an opportunity. Um, and, you know, really this is the time. Um, these uh, sections of ALA that are addressing these challenges, these are, this is unprecedented. Um, and so having the support um, to be able to develop a nationwide strategy and to really support those smaller libraries, um, if, if this is what you're passionate about, if this is what you care about, um, your, your contributions matter uh, in this space um, to address these important issues. And to continue, the, if intellectual freedom is something that you're passionate about and educating the general public about those intellectual freedom challenges, now is the time to do so. And part of this is raising, uh, raising awareness of these issues as a way to support ALA and, uh, and its efforts. Well, what should library foundations um consider as we enter into the rest of 2022? I think one of the key things is also um, having lived through some of the financial crises of the past um, three decades is to look at um, how, their, how their funds are currently invested um, so that they can continue to prepare for the future, um, making sure that they've rebalanced uh, those. Uh, look at what, um, what ways of support are um, working in their community, whether it's an opportunity to re-engage people, welcome people back in person, or to continue to do things online. Uh, there are education opportunities at this point about what does intellectual freedom mean? What does intellectual freedom mean for my community? What does it mean for me personally? What does it mean for our world? I mean, the mis and disinformation that we're seeing um, right now in the Ukraine crisis, part of what ALA works to support is to combat those mis and disinformation sources. And so how do we do that best? Um, so I think for foundations looking at, it's a good time to review some of your policies to make sure that you are meeting those needs going forward. Um, and whether you're a library foundation or just um, the library governance board, which might not be a foundation, it's, it's a good time to be reviewing, uh, reviewing those things. Uh, I also think it's a good time to pause and think about for the rest of this year, what are the top three things I care to support right now? Um, and how does that affect how I'm going to spend my resources?
And we want to give a quick thanks to our sponsor of today's episode, Emporia State University. The ALA-accredited Master of Library Science program from the School of Library and Information Management at Emporia State University is now fully online and asynchronous. Our affordable out-of-state tuition rate ensures students access to this program from anywhere at any time. You can get an MLS degree in two years or less and even take courses in our fully online PhD program. Request further information at emporia.edu forward slash slim. That's E-M-P-O-R-I-A dot E-D-U forward slash S-L-I-M. Student loans can be a worry many librarians have even long after they've graduated for college. Kyra Hahn, founder of Librarian for PSLF, chats with me about her journey going through the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. So tell us a little bit about your journey with student loans and student loan forgiveness. Uh, first, how many federal student loans do you have or degrees did you get? And uh, how much of it has been forgiven? Wow. So let's see. I've had um, in the ballpark of $50,000 forgiven. Um, that covered uh, two degrees, um, my undergraduate um, and my graduate. So my undergraduate degree... Um, was in sociology, um, and that was a long journey um, with multiple colleges, mm-hmm. um, a move between states, etc. But I finished. I think it cl- took me close to ten years to finish that one, and then for my graduate degree, um, that was much more of a traditional experience where I was able to get through in two years at University of Denver. Right, that's great. And so when did you start the process of of applying for the PSLF? Um, I I did not learn, even though the program was created in 2007 um, and I graduated in 2007, I didn't learn about it until um, closer to 2009, I think. Mm -hmm. a colleague at work had mentioned it to me, um, and I started looking into it. Um, and it sounded, you know, it sounds great, like it's going to be an easy process. Um, and yet it's not. <laughs> um, right. it, it has truly evolved over time. Um, I remember when I first started um, looking into it, um, they didn't have an employment certification program, you know, your loan servicer just told you, oh, yeah, you're fine, you're on track. Um, And then, you know, further into the process is when, um, you know, it got more complicated with, you know, having to submit certain forms and um, having to, you know, certify your employment every year Mm -hmm. and, participating in certain types of repayment programs. Uh, One of the first challenges I encountered was I was not on the right repayment plan. (laughs) So I had to switch to an income-based repayment plan. Right. Um, And so that was an adjustment for sure. How can librarians figure out if, if they're eligible? And, you know, was that something you were aware of before your colleague mentioned it to you or... I was not aware of it before my colleague mentioned it to me. Um, 
psychologists don't tell you, the loan servicers don't tell you. Right. You know, I I kind of felt like it was this. You know, I'm very grateful to that colleague that mentioned it to me because mm-hmm. um, it felt it was like a hidden yet shared secret. Um, and so I know for me that once I started getting into it and you know learning more about it, I was like, more people should know about this. A weight truly has been lifted off of my shoulders. You know, I I didn't think or know how I was going to pay this amount of debt off before I died, and it was not for lack of paying. Right. Um, you know, I mean, during during this whole process, I mean, I was on income based repayment plans. I worked multiple jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I think for me. Really, I once I learned about the program and based on what is described, how it's supposed to work, that's where the focus of my advocacy of how can we get this to work the way you say it's supposed to work because people are doing the work, they're, you know, fulfilling the obligation for public service and yet we're we're not seeing the follow through or the desired outcome. So I, I want to jump to talk a little bit about your your Facebook group. Um, you mentioned a little bit about where it started from, but I'm wondering if you could take me back. You know, what year was it that you decided to start the Facebook group? Um, well, let's see. So I I ended up starting the Facebook group around 2017 because I had I had a really adverse experience. Um, during trying to recertify my income for my income based repayment plan. I went to recertify, you have to recertify your income every year. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I was the only person in my household who qualifies for public service loan forgiveness. I am a married tax filer and basically when they recalculated my repayment for that particular year, um, it exceeded what my income was. I mean, literally, they quoted me back a four-digit payment, and I'm like, I, no, I, yeah. I cannot afford that. There's there's an error here somewhere. I need you to calculate it only on my income. I'm the only person in my household that qualifies for PSLF. And so, um, you know, in this in this Facebook group, um, what kinds of conversations are, are you having with members or what kind of conversations are they having amongst each other? Um, so within the Facebook group, um, I share, you know, articles and news about um, student loan forgiveness. Um, group members share their experiences. They ask questions like, okay, I just got this notice. Are other people getting this notice too? Or what does this process look like? Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, the, the experience of trying to navigate what sounds like on the surface should be a simple program has been so complex. Um, and so really, the Facebook group serves as a place to vet and verify what we're seeing. Um, you know, what we're hearing from our loan servicers. Right. Um, is this accurate? Is it not? Um, you know, and it is different because, you know, there's one dedicated company who 
specialized in student loan forgiveness, and that was by contract with Fed loans. Um, they're the dedicated servicer. And so, you know, now there's been a lot of conversations now about the changes in loan servicing um, and what that's going to look like. And, um, you know, how how do you get information when Fed loans is not your servicer? Um, and it's interesting because, you know, for borrowers that are not with Fed loans, um, their notifications are coming slower. They're typically coming by mail. Um, we're encur- I'm encouraging people to make sure that they have updated their contact information with federal student aid and um, their loan servicer in order to make sure that they are getting proper notices. Um, but yeah, the notification process is even different um, if your loan servicer is not fed loans. What is the main challenge you're noticing everyone is kind of frustrated with? Um, I think right now the two biggest, well, there's probably two to three big issues. One is, you know, a lot of a lot of borrowers are uh, nervous about entering repayment. Um, you know, we've been in emergency forbearance for, um, you know, two years. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, honestly, I I do think that it's going to get pushed out even further because the loan servicers are not prepared and have not done the proper notifications that need to happen for um, repayment to resume. Um, one thing that complicates the process is that um, for people that paid uh, via auto debit previously, um, that was incentivized with a small interest rate discount. Um, now we're now borrowers are being told as they re-enter into repayment that they have to set that all back up, and of course mm-hmm. that takes time. Um, any sort of auto debit takes 30 to 60 days typically to get set up. I, realistically, I don't see how they're going to restart that um, May 1st. Let's see, another concern is, you know, a lot of people were not aware of um, the requirement to be on certain types of income repayment plans. So they're trying to navigate income-based repayment either as a novice or for the first time. And the payment amounts that are being quoted are not necessarily affordable. Mm. Um, And so their borrowers are worried about that. You know, there was a recent report just earlier this week from NPR about reported problems with uh, between servicers and income-based repayment plans. Um, With the income-based repayment plans, not only are those required for PSLF, you know, that's supposed to be a wider tool to help borrowers in general be able to afford their student loan payments. And if they've participated for 20 to 25 years, they are supposed to be eligible for a component of forgiveness there, and that's not happening. Um, you know, I think that was discovered, they discovered problems with it last year, and now there's been some additional investigations, and, you know, information is coming to light that borrowers, that loan servicers were not aware of when they were supposed to be, like, forgiving these loans. 
So that is a huge challenge as well. Um, You know, and to me, it's, in some ways, it feels like there's a challenge to the current um, education department um, to actually step up and honor these previous legislations that have been passed that have not been administered Mm -hmm. uh, correctly previous to their tenure. And so you you talked with us in an interview before that that you're looking to continue advocacy work for improvements to the to the program to kind of make to to shed light on some of these challenges that you know uh, librarians are having. So I'm wondering what improvements are you and other librarians seeking to to make? Um, well, let's see. I I have to say that uh, one of the things that um, I have tried to advocate for, and this is a problem, unfortunately, that seems to be unique to librarianship Mm -hmm. in general, is for our employment certification process, um, you know, public library can be in the name of the organization, and um, there there was an electronic tool introduced by Department of Ed in federal student aid. It's called the PSLF Help Tool. And they had these lofty goals of putting together a database of employers in order and trying to simplify this process and automate it. Well, the problem is, is that people are following the guidance of federal student aid um, and they're using the tool and it's kicking back the employers that previously were being honored are not, that they're not in the database and they're ineligible. So that's generating a whole other layer of, oh, I have to manually enter it in. And then the employer has to get manually verified. You know, you already interact with the IRS um, data for um, income-based repayment plans and certifying income. Can you use that to verify employment identification numbers? Um, Because that is a huge Uh, point of rejection for a lot of folks. Everyone's trying to do what they can in order to participate in the system as it's being described, but yet um, there there are still a lot of challenges. You know, my hope is that they're able to make some reforms and keep PSLF, um, but actually have it... um, work in the way that it was initially envisioned or designed or described legislatively. So do you have any tips for our listeners out there who are currently working towards, uh, you know, loan forgiveness or in the process of starting an application? Start with looking at your accounts on Federal Student Aid's website. That's going to give you great insight into uh, what types of loans you have. I think another challenge Um, that I also want to make sure that I highlight within librarianship is um, I've really tried to raise awareness with administrators and HR departments about this program and how it works because there wasn't an awareness of it. So I want to encourage uh, library administrations to be willing to support that because you know, forgiving student loan debt is life-changing for staff. And that's it for today's show. Please join us on May 16th for the next episode of Call Number with American Libraries. I'm your host, Diana Penuncial, and thanks for tuning in.